Well, I'm subbing for Chris again today, and we're going to be going through chapter five of his book. I realize y'all don't have his book. Uh, I have a copy of the unrevised when he's getting it revised, and so we need to have it for everybody, I think, by the end of this class. <clears throat> it's really a good book, and I'm, I'm glad um, that he wrote it, and I've learned a lot from it. And it's an honor to be subbing for him on chapter five, the book's The Crisis of Discipleship. Now, nobody likes a name dropper, do you? Uh, I know people who seem like they have to always drop a name of somebody famous in the conversation. Um, like some guy saying, well, my youngest son had malignant brain cancer and Dr. Ben Carson operated on him for eight and a half hours. Ooh. Well, that's me. Uh, seriously. <laughs> Unfortunately, Ann and I know Ben very well. Um, and it must sound like the epitome of arrogance to non-Christians when, because Christians, we have the opportunity to be the biggest name dropper in the world, to say, you know, I know God personally. Now, that's got to sound arrogant to a non-Christian. You think you know God personally? And it would be. That would be the most arrogant thing you and I could say if it wasn't God who invited us into the relationship. And that's really one of the core messages of the entire scriptures. And that's the point Chris is getting at today. Uh, you'll see the title of his chapter is The Way of Relationship. We talked last week about way, that word way, uh, in the Greek, if you trace it from the Greek to Hebrew to Aramaic, it meant originally to toss a pebble. Because when they were traveling through the Judean hills at night, you couldn't see. They didn't have street lights. You didn't have flashlight. So they would toss a pebble, and if they could hear it hit, you could put your foot there, and you weren't going to go over a precipice. That morphed in the Greek to, I mean, in the, the Hebrew to on the right path. And then in the Greek, uh, way means to be on the right road. So when Jesus says, I am the way, he's saying, I am the road, the truth, and the life. And so we're going to focus in this morning on being on that way in relationship. And it's all about you and me as disciples. You're not really a disciple unless you're in a firsthand personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I remember Lewis would always talk about, you know, uh, you can't have a secondhand relationship with God and really be on the right road. Um, I always like to recommend books to people to read that will help you drill down on what's going to happen today. If you've never read J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, he wrote it back in the 70s. It's a classic. Again, it's one of those books that you're saved by grace, but there'll be a remedial reading class in heaven. They'll have you read that book because it's just great. And the basic point of the book is, you know, there's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God in a personal way. And the Christian faith is all about the latter. There'd be a lot of PhDs in religion in hell uh, who know a lot about God, but they never met him in a firsthand way. Now, I put John 10, verses 14 and 15 up there because here's Jesus really hammering home this whole idea of relationship as being the heart of what our faith is all about. He says in those verses, I am the good shepherd. I know, and that Greek word know, 
uh, again, if you trace that back to the Hebrew, that is not just knowing with the head. In fact, I don't want to get too risque here, but Adam knew Eve and she conceived. So it's the most intimate. It's not saying we have a sexual relationship with God. It's trying to make the point that we can know God at the most intimate level possible, made possible by him. Nothing that we do to set that up or invite that. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. He's saying, I know you personally. Um, and my own know me. So there's this back and forth relationship. And, and then he says, just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So the intimacy that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, has with the first person, the Father, is an intimacy that you and I as creatures can have with the Father as well um, through our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, when I was in seminary, of course, we all, in the 70s, the church growth movement had come on the scene. And there was a guy at Fuller Seminary named Donald McGavran. And he was pushing church growth. And we all wanted to pastor big churches. By the way, every pastor of a large church looks over the fence and says, oh, I wish I could pastor a 200-member church where I could know everybody and there's not all this administrative junk. And every pastor of small church says, oh, I wish I could pastor you know, some big church. So, you know. <laughs> but uh, McGavern, uh, it was very controversial. Uh, he came up with this methodology or an idea called the homogenous uh, church growth principle. And it's based on human sociology. And you'll go, duh, when I tell you what it is. What kind of people do you and I most of the time like to be with? People just like us. Uh, I've traveled all over the world, every continent except Antarctica. And I, you know, when I'm out of my comfort zone with people like me, I've had to learn to culturally adapt and learn from other people that are unlike me. But that's not the way we as fallen human beings, you, de facto, we like being around people that are the same as us. McGavern's controversial principle was, he said, when you're planting a church or pastoring a church, go after the people just like you and build this homogenous thing. Now, I came out of seminary. I, I didn't, that didn't seem to set right with me. And I came on the staff of this church as an associate pastor back in 79. And of course, here we are in the middle of San Antonio and a multicultural city. And Lewis was very much not of that homogenous church growth principle. Um, although we never had, a, I kept saying to Lewis, we need to get an Hispanic pastor. Sorry, Lewis, I'm telling stories on you. And we finally did, 40 years later. <laughs> but I don't know why we never did. But uh, the homogenous growth principle is really a heresy, I think. Um, if you look at the first megachurch in Scripture, it's on the day of Pentecost. And it says that the Holy Spirit gathers like 3,000 people. And then it lists where they're from. From Europe, the Mideast, Asia, Africa. I've always looked at that and said, well, that, that means 
right from the get-go, the church is to be multicultural and not homogenous. That's not to say if you're in a small town in South Dakota where there's only Norwegians, you're, you're bad because there's only Norwegians in your church. But um, we should never close our doors to anyone just because they're not like us. Um, now think about this. If the heart of the Christian faith is knowing God in a personal way, that really shoots down the homogenous principle because there's no other being in the universe that's more unlike you and me than God. I really didn't think about that until I was reading Chris's book. I always feel very much at home with God, always have, and I've never really, I know, I know he's different, I know he's the Lord of the universe, but think about it, God is totally other, totally different. He's sinless, pure, uh, infinite in wisdom and love, and none of us measure up to any of that. And, um, and yet we're invited into this relationship with the totally opposite being in the universe from ourselves. Um, you know, there's that old thing, you know, opposites attract. I guess God came up with that principle. And in fact, God has made you and me with a deep longing inside of us you might call it homesickness. When Adam and Eve fell, and the whole human race then fell, um, we lost our home with a capital H, that intimate relationship that Adam and Eve originally had with the Father. And there's this longing. We might not be able to express what that is or even understand what it is inside of us, but we have this longing to get back into right relationship with the Father. Augustine, St. Augustine has this great prayer. He says, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And that's pretty true. And Chris says, the big question of the Christian faith is this. How can we have a relationship with someone we can't see and who's infinitely different from us. How do we do that? One of my favorite stories is the story of a little boy. His dad puts him to sleep in bed. And ten minutes later, the little boy's run into the parents' room. I don't want to be alone. I'm scared. Blah, 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 blah. And the father says to him, oh, son, come on, go back to bed. He tucks him in again. Ten minutes later, he's running in. Dad, Mom, I want to sleep in here with you. I'm scared. I don't want to be alone. And um, the father puts him to bed again. It happens about two more times. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be alone. And the father says, son, you're not alone. God is with you in the room there. And the little boy says, well, I'd prefer something with skin on it. <laughs> and really, that's, that's the gospel. And uh, you and I would prefer something that we can see and feel and touch and and uh, that has skin on it. Well, that's what the incarnation is all about. That's why this infinite God um, entered into time and space. And uh, one of my seminary professors used to say, 
Jesus is God become man without becoming unlike himself as God. And I think that really sums it up. And so this infinite being becomes fully human. So when we see Jesus, uh, we see God. But here's a little formula that I find interesting and kind of challenging. Uh, think about this. Jesus is God, but God is not Jesus. Jesus is God, but God is not Jesus. Jesus is fully deity. By the way, when people use the word divine in reference to Christ, I always say, don't use that word. Uh, you can fudge on the word divine, like that pecan pot is divine. And, uh, but when you, you would never say that pecan pie is deity. <laughs> so deity is a, a non-wiggle room word. When you talk about Christ, I always say he's deity, not just divine. There are other divine things in the world, but not any other deity. So Jesus is God become man without becoming unlike himself as God. And um, again, one of the things behind another story that I used to use in preaching was uh, when I was a little kid, one Christmas, I got an ant farm. Have you ever seen one of those ant farms, you know? And it came complete with ants and, you know, pour the sand in there and put the ants in and they burrow and make their little tunnels. Now, let's just say for the argument, for the sake of the argument, you were in love with those ants and you wanted to communicate to those ants that you loved them. What could you do? You could look at them and go up to the little glass and get, well, chances are they're not going to get it. You could write little notes and drop them in there. Ants are illiterate. They can't read. Um, so how can you show those ants or tell those ants you really love them? What if you could become an ant? And get into the ant farm and communicate that way. Well, that again, that's an analogy to the gospel, what God does in Jesus Christ. Um, so God is, Jesus is not God, though. God is Jesus. Jesus is God, but God is not Jesus. Because God is more than Jesus. That's what the Trinity is, obviously. He's Father, Holy Spirit, and son. So from the beginning of time, you have God is not only a relational being in that he wants a relationship with us, he's always been in a perfect relationship with Father, loving Son, loving Holy Spirit. His very essence is a relational being. So when the Bible says that we're made in the image of God, it makes sense that he's created you and me to be chiefly relational beings. Um, okay. So Chris says, we can't see the Father, but we do see Jesus. And then he quotes from Hebrews here, that Jesus made a little lower than angels. So when we see Jesus, we see God in the flesh. Um, now, when I came out of seminary, I got this relational thing. 
but I got something wrong about it. I, I thought relationship was in direct opposition to religion. I used to look at people and say, well, they're religious, but they don't know God. So, they're... so I thought those were two different things. So I took great glee when I'd fill out a, a, an application for something and they'd put down their um, religion. I'd put none. And then occupation, pastor. <laughs> and that generated a few interesting conversations. I make the point, you know, I'm not into religion. It's about a relationship with Christ. That is totally wrong and bogus. Does anybody know what the literal meaning of the word religion is? It, it's simply this, connected. That's all it means. Religion means connect. If you're religious, you're connected. Well, connection implies relationship. What are you connected to? God and other people. Um, so have you ever heard people say, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious? That means I don't like the church and I don't want anybody telling me what to believe, blah, blah, blah. So I go out on the hillside by myself and read my Bible or my Koran or whatever and pray to whatever, and I'm fine. I can do it by myself. Nah. God never created Lone Ranger people of faith. Um, to be in a relationship is to be religious. It's to be connected, connected to God and to other people. That's God's design, not my opinion. And um, so back to this thing of I know God personally. That would be the most arrogant thing we could say if that's not what God went to the cross to initiate, and it's totally grace, meaning he made the first move, provenient grace. He's the one doing the inviting. Nobody can say, I know God personally, unless God has invited him, it, you, or that person, into that relationship. And you know, it's, that's true of human relationships, too. How can you know me intimately? Anybody throw out some ideas? How can you, if you want to know Ron Skates, how can you do that? Hmm? Talk to you, spend time with you. Um, well, you can Google my name. You can look at my college and high school transcripts. You can interview people. You can interview, we can't interview my parents because they're with the Lord. You can interview people that know me, blah, 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 blah. But here's the deal. You can never know me until one thing happens. Till I choose to reveal myself to you. You can have ideas about me. Some may be accurate. Some may be not accurate. You'll never know who I really am until I choose to reveal myself to you. No different than with God. And we say there are two forms of the Word of God. There's the written Word of God, and this is God's self-revelation in the Bible. You read this, you should be always asking yourself, what does this tell me about the character, the nature of God? The second form is the living Word, which is Jesus Christ. Again, back to you see Jesus 
you see God. Jesus is God become man without becoming unlike himself as God. So we see the real epitome of who God is in Christ. And it's all about grace. Um, you, know, you can't earn a relationship with me. You can try. In fact, feel free to send me checks. and yes. But in, until I want that relationship to happen, you, you can't earn it. Same with God. If you want to know God, then ask God to reveal himself to you and be open to what he reveals. And so, um, move on to the next. Christ's disciples are called into a personal relationship with God in Christ. This is the essence. Without this personal relationship, you just, you know, he's out there. So it's invite, he's inviting you to come into the very depth of his being while you invite him to come into the very depth of your being. Um, and so discipleship equals relationship. Love's not an idea, it's a relationship. Discipleship, therefore, involves a relationship with God, Father, and the Holy Spirit. It's not just a personal relationship with Jesus. It's a personal, personal relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And God wants a full-orbed relationship with you and me. Uh, every facet of him we can relate personally to. Uh, so it's entering into a triune relationship with every person of the triune Godhead. Well, how do we do that? Well, I'm stealing my own thunder here. We're going to get to that in a minute. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says that faith, hope, love, these three are great, but the greatest of these is love. Have you ever wondered why he says love's the greatest of those things? I'll tell you. Out of those three, um, love is the only one of those that's eternal, has always been, and always will be. Back to the triune Godhead, a Father, loving Holy Spirit, loving Son. So there's always been this, not just a relationship, eternal relationship, but eternal relationship of love, pure love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to be created imago dei in the image of God means that you and I are created to be in relationship, but it's to be a loving relationship with God and with other people. And that's the epitome of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. Faith, um, when I was, my last class in seminary, I took with Dr. Elizabeth Ochtemeyer. I'll never forget what she said. She said, guys, you're going to be graduating from here. And if you don't get this, you're going to go out and wreck churches. So you better get this right. And she said, uh, what is faith? Now, I went to Union Seminary in Richmond, Virginia, and it attracted a lot of students from Davidson College. And they thought they were smarter than everybody else. So all the Davidson boys raised their hand and you know, went into all these highfalutin theological explanations of faith. And she stood there and let them do it. And they'd run out of gas 
And she said, well, thanks for the, but that's not what it's all about. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, faith is simply this, a personal relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And if you get that, you're going to be a, a good pastor. If you don't, you're going to wreck churches. And uh, unfortunately, some people get that, some people don't. But I've not always had a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not something that's eternal. I will, through eternity. Hope can be defined as faith projected into the future. Well, there was a time when I didn't have any hope. So the only one of those three that's eternal, backwards and forwards, is love. Beginning with the love, of inward love of God for himself, and then we will be in this loving relationship with God throughout eternity. Um, and Chris says, like this, God is not a force we submit to. God's a person we fall in love with in a relationship of love. I've got a friend here in San Antonio, and he has on his fence a cross. He's a Roman Catholic, and he's a very devout Roman Catholic. And then he has Buddhist prayer flags underneath the cross. Now, he and I have talked about faith. He is on fire for Christ. So I keep hesitating to ask him, why, do you, why did you put those Buddhist prayer flags? Now, I grew up in a half-Roman Catholic family. I know what he's going to say. I, I can script it. If I said, Greg, why do you have those Buddhist prayer flags? His reaction is going to be, you believe in prayer, don't you? And he just thinks that's a good thing. Prayer is a good thing. You know, the Roman Catholic Church, the great strength of it, it's been able to penetrate every culture wherever it's gone, better than any other Christian faith system. The flip side of that is it gets compromised <laughs> syncretistically by almost every culture it enters. Uh, I may have told you the story before, forgive me. I, I took a, a team of senior highs from here down in the Yucatan Peninsula in this remote village where we built a house for a pastor back in the 80s. And there was a Roman Catholic, small Roman Catholic church. There were two churches in town, Presbyterian and Roman Catholic. And one day I wandered into the Roman Catholic church, and I'm familiar with the 14 stations of the cross. There they were. There was a ledge, and they had a little statue of Christ in the different positions. And I'm, I'm looking, I'm going, look like there was a Mayan god behind each of the stations of the cross. The priest came along, and I said, I'm not trying to start a war or anything else. I'm just curious. It looks like behind every one of those stations of the cross is a Mayan god. And he hung his head. And he said, you're right, they are. I said, well, he said, when I came here as priest, I took them down. Nobody came to church. <laughs> so I put them back, they all come. So uh, it's easy. If you go to the big cathedral in Mexico City and go down to the basement, it's full of Mayan statues. And so anyway, it's, I would say to my friend, if I ever get the courage to ask him, I'm going to say, but, but who are you praying to, Buddhists or atheists? They're praying to a force. They believe when those prayer flags are waving in the wind that somehow that's affecting the karma of the universe. But they're not praying to a being. I don't know if he knows that or not. Um, 
but he's not a force. So how do you and I love God? I mean, really love him. Uh, human beings are who they become because of relationships, good and bad. Your relationship with your parents, with your sibling, with your friends, that affects how you and I turn out. It's no different than our relationship with God. You know, somebody has said, you and I become what we worship. That's why idolatry is the worst sin. Uh, putting anything else in place of the one true living God, you will become like what you worship. So if we worship God, we should start becoming like God. Now last week I drew the kind of the sanctification graph. It's like the stock market, your life and mine. We're going to have times when we make progress and then we, you know, fall off the wagon, so to speak, sinning-wise. And and that's what our life is going to be like until we die. But there ought to be an upward trajectory. If not, if it's going like this, something is terribly wrong in your life. So don't lose hope when you sin and you fall a bit. Uh, repent, turn around, ask the Holy Spirit to give you strength, and you just truck on. But you ought to be making progress. Um, and that's part of the Holy Spirit's job. We're saved totally, 100%, 150% by God alone. We don't contribute to ourselves. Wait, dude, we contribute one thing, our sin. That's it. Uh, we don't save ourselves by doing good works, by, you know, we don't love God to get saved. We love God because he first loved us and drew us into this relationship. So... Um, and if we throw ourselves into this, hopefully we will become more like God over a period of time. I said last week, there are certain Christian sects that actually believe you and I can become sinless. Don't believe it. Um, you can't. And that's a battle we fight. It's a discouraging battle. But we're not in it alone. And we have God's promise that once we belong to him, he will ensure that we arrive home one day. So the Christian faith is essentially not intellectual, although doctrine is very important. And we need to be, the, you know, people come to me and say, Ron, I'm not a theologian. I always say, yes, you are. Everybody's a theologian. Madeline Murray O'Hare, theologian. Richard Dawkins is a theologian. Theologos, theo, God, logos, words. Theology is just words about God. Everybody has an opinion about God, what they think God is, what he's like. The question is, are you and I going to be a good theologian or a bad theologian? My mentor in seminary, John Leith, used to always say, bad theology always hurts people. And so we should be as good in theology as we can, which I'll throw in a plug for the study center that we're putting together. We've done a soft lunch, lunch soft launch, launch last week. Uh, we have designed this Lewis Abendon Study Center that's going to be a seminary on our campus. Ellen's our administrative whiz. We're looking for a director with passion for this and a fire. Uh, so if that's you, come see me. And uh, we, did, we were hoping 
this fall to do a soft launch to see if this thing might work. And we didn't want too many people involved because if it didn't work, we didn't want to be embarrassed. So we were going to put together three cohorts, one of church planters that we are in partnership with. And Mitchell and I lead that group. We had uh, 11 church planters last Tuesday. Then there's one of emerging church leaders from churches all over town. And that thing has like, I don't know, 37, you know? 42. Um, and then one that's kind of open to everybody at First Pres. although we didn't advertise this because we didn't want, we didn't think people would flood in, but if they did, we didn't want the embarrassment to be too big if it failed. So we've got, what, 60-some people now involved in this thing. And next year, we're going to do a hard launch, and it's a partnership between First Pres, Redeemer Pres down the street, uh, a group called Third Millennium, which puts together our curriculum, and Richard Pratt, the director of that, he'll be in our pulpit October 29th on Reformation Sunday preaching. He and I were in seminary together, but we didn't know each other because he was married. We didn't hang out with married students. But he's put together, he was a professor at Reform Seminary in, in uh, Orlando for years, and then he launched this thing, Third Millennium, to provide free seminary-quality education all over the world uh, in 22 different languages. And he's done it. And we're hoping here that this will revamp our whole adult education program. If you want a seminary degree, you can get it here for free. And we're facing southward to impact Mexico, Central and South America, and the San Antonio area chiefly. But you all come, anybody come, we'll serve them. So this thing's being launched. And um, so we want you to be good theologians. But being a Christian is not chiefly intellectual or works-oriented or a good person. As uh, Leo DeRocher said, good guys are a dime a dozen. But it's about an intimate, personal, loving relationship with the Lord. Um, well, how do you do that? It's no different than the way you relate to another human being. If... if um, Milt, you and I decide we want to be best friends. We go, okay, let's do it. And um, you say, well, Ron, I'm going to once a week call you and we can talk. And so you call me, but I never pick up the phone. I say, oh, it's Milt. You know? um, so we don't talk. And so then you start inviting me over to your house. You, Ron, come over for lunch. I say, okay, I'll be there. I don't show. Where's this relationship going? Are we? <laughs> yeah. But the more you and I talk to each other, the more we spend time with each other intentionally, that's how relationships grow deeper and broader and solid. What's uh, no difference with God? If you and I are not continually talking with God, how do we do that? How do you talk to God? You know, the culture now really believes we're crazy. You know, we believe in the imaginary little old man upstairs, you know, and they actually think they talk to somebody out there. Uh, prayer is the, the Reformed faith, of which we're part of as Presbyterian-type Christians, has always says there's three ordinary means of grace. And I can't hammer this home enough. If you want to have a, 
a, a Christian life that has ballast, that has, that's anchored, uh, that has direction, that gives you strength to make it through anything. You need to practice the three ordinary means of grace, and it's all about relationship. The first one is prayer, where you and I talk to God, not reading rote prayers off a page. You know, what if, Milt, we're going to have this relationship, and I say, well, let's have a conversation. I pull out a script. <laughs> Hi, Milt, how are you today? Um, hope everything's good. You'd be going, <laughs> I'm not sure. I, this guy's not off his rocker. Um, now, I'm not against uh, reading prayers. I've, I hear people pray from the heart in some worship, not in ours, in other worship services where it's like, you should have spent some time on that prayer <laughs> and not just whatever comes to mind or going around the barn 18 times. God's probably up there going, oh, man. Um, there are beautiful prayers written out there, a prayer of confession. I, I cringe when occasionally one of our Assistance of worship will say, let's read the prayer of confession together. I'm like, no, no. You pray the prayer, you know, reading a prayer. God's not interested in how well you can read. He is interested in where your heart is. And, it, and so those prayers of confession, one time somebody came to me and said, I hate those prayers of confession. I said, well, I don't, I'm not big fans of them either, you know, it's, Pretty bloody stuff, it can be. And they said, well, no, no, I don't do any of that stuff, usually. Um, and I said, you know what? I don't either. But being a Christian means we're connected with other Christians. I guarantee you there are people in this sanctuary and around the world that are doing that stuff, and we're complicit. We're all in this together. And that person told me that changed their whole paradigm of how they saw the prayer of confession. That's a corporate prayer. You may have not done exactly what it's saying or certain phrasing, but you're owning up that I'm a part of those that did. And there are Sundays when I'm like, "Woo, Bob must have followed me around this week. Um, so your, your solidarity with other Christians, that's what that, and that's why there, there's a silent time, of, you know, for your own personal prayer. But both cases, God doesn't want something read off a page. He wants your heart. You can put your heart into a written prayer. Um, it can be done. The second of the three ordinary means of grace is the word. This is where God speaks to us. That's why if you're dipping in occasionally once a month, that relationship ain't going nowhere. I, I'm going to be pretty... I don't have much time left, so I don't want to go, oh, I should have said before I left this... If you're not daily reading scripture, if you're not in a Bible reading plan where you're going through scripture every year, it'll take you 20 minutes a day. That will shape you. You will hear God's voice like you've never heard it before. Passages you thought you understood this time around won't. I remember uh, my last semester in seminary taking a course in the book of Romans by Paul Ochtemeyer, the husband of Elizabeth Ochtemeyer. They used to say, he was an internationally famous New Testament scholar. They used to say, Paul, Paul Ochtemeyer owns Romans. And I mean, he took us into a depth in there that, wow. So my first year here at the church, we had a, a week of spiritual renewal. And we invited Dick Halverson 
pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda, Maryland, to come down. He was the Senate chaplain, and he's the author of the benediction I use. It's not mine, it's his. Dick's with the Lord now. He came down, and, and he spoke every night, but then in the mornings, he had a, a men's Bible study, and uh, he said, I'm going to take you through Romans in the week he was here. I thought, oh, man, I'll be able to contribute a lot because I know Romans. After the first morning, I was like, what? He brought stuff out of the text that Paul Octomire missed. And the word of God's inexhaustible. You can't get everything out of it no matter how hard you try. It'll, it'll always take you deeper. But that's part of the conversation. You're praying, talking to God. He's speaking to you. Um, I'd let him speak first before you pray. Why don't you read scripture? Maybe that's going to shape how you talk to him. And the third is the sacrament, Holy Communion. Now I'm going to get on my little bandstand here and say, I think we're in total, not total, big error as Presbyterians in celebrating communion only once a month. When I came to this church, we celebrated quarterly. You know where that comes from? It comes from the Scottish tradition. The Scottish Church of Scotland celebrated communion quarterly. Why? Because at the time of the Reformation, John Knox, a Roman Catholic priest, um, he leads the Reformation there in Scotland. The whole Church of Scotland becomes not Roman Catholic, but Presbyterian. Now, Knox, as a priest, he understood that they celebrated Mass every week, but the people did not get the cup at all, ever. They got the bread twice a year. The priest got the bread and the wine every week. Twice a year, the people got the bread. Knox thought, I'll double it and give them both, and that's a big plus. So that's where quarterly communion comes from. The PCA, Redeemer Down Streets, PCA Church, you go there every Sunday, they have communion. All their church plants, they've, they've reclaimed the third part of the three ordinary means of grace. I mean, think about it. Let's theologically think about it. If it is a means of grace, which means that when we're practicing it, the Holy Spirit is doing something in us and through us, may not be, you know, oh, yeah, I feel. Oh, I just take the wafer. Oh, I felt something. No, but... As we're celebrating communion as the body of Christ, that is as close as we can come to the real presence of Christ this side of eternity. And by the way, we Presbyterians believe the real presence of Christ in the sacrament. We just don't try to define how that is. Thomas Aquinas, great Roman Catholic theologian, he tried to define, he came up with transubstantiation, that the bread and wine without changing their accidents, their appearance and their taste, still tastes and looks like bread and wine, but it's actually the body and blood of Christ. Martin Luther during the Reformation said, no, nah, I don't like that. So he tried to come up with something else. He came, comes up with consubstantiation, that somehow the presence of Christ is in and around and underneath the elements. Calvin looks at them both and says, this is a mystery too big for the human mind to define we believe it, we're not going to define it, we just bow before the reality and worship. So if you go to a Roman Catholic church and you go up to the priest and say, I'm Presbyterian, can I take communion? They'll probably say no. 
And if you ask him why, he'll say, because you don't believe the real presence. If you say you do, I guarantee he's going to, then come on. I've done that. And uh, most Presbyterians, if, if you say, do we believe the real presence? They say, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, communion's not a memorial. You know, back what Jesus did. Memorials are for dead people. Jesus is alive. So um, frequent communion. My church in Dallas, we had a communion service every Sunday. So if you wanted communion, you could get it. But we ought to be celebrating it every Sunday. You just fell right into my trap. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Or, I I've said from every pulpit I've been pastor of here, Dallas, Baltimore, we should be doing this every week. And somebody always comes to me and says, well, then it wouldn't be so special. And I said, well, why don't I preach like once every three months? then my sermons would really be special. It's not about the feeling. It's about obedience. I mean, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah, when I was Jakarta for six months without Anne. But it was miserable. And our relationship didn't thrive with me over on the other side of the planet. WhatsApp was great, but... You know, um, no, I want an Anne with me. Yes, Cindy? I just want to ask, where is the scripture that says you were to do it? I don't know, is it there that, like, because it does talk about, you know, pray every day and read your Bible and, like, but where does it say to do communion and why would you only do it on a Sunday then if you have people around you who you would do it every day? Yeah. Um, so where does it say that in scripture? I don't, I don't well, know. it talks about breaking bread, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul lays this out. Where does it say we're not to? Right, but I mean, I just think that was more like when you have a meal with other believers, it's not that you're, you know, you're breaking bread with each other, you're having a meal, but it's not the bread and wine, you don't believe it becomes the bread and body of, like the body and blood of Christ. So, I'm just curious, I'm not trying to, I'm just... Well, in 1 Corinthians, Paul, me, Paul says, I delivered unto you what I received from the Lord Jesus, and I was... And most biblical scholars would say he's laying out this weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper. And that's the way the early church took it. And really up until the Reformation, it was communion or the mass every Sunday. So that's an argument from silence, but um, the church always did do it every... I mean, just like you could say the same thing. Why do we sing hymns every week? doesn't say in the Bible. Uh, our Presbyterian Book of Directory for Worship says there ought to be every service of worship should have reading of scripture and a sermon, prayer, taking up an offering, and um, and then the sacraments when necessary. You know. So I, I I I could get into a whole theological thing of why communion every week. I, I, let's just go back to the simple argument. <coughs> Milt, you and I want to be best friends. Uh, you want to meet every week. I want to meet every six months. Which is going to help the relationship? If we're, if we're about a relationship. Every week. Yeah. Well, why is it any different with God? 
Um, and there are churches that have communion every day. Incarnation Episcopal in Dallas, I was good friends with Tony Burton there, and they have communion every, every day. You can go, they have a morning service, a noon service, and an even song service every day of the week. Now that would wear me out as a pastor. He's got a big staff, so they shift it around. But, uh, ooh, wow, I've run out of time here. Um, Chris talks about Martin Buber was a great Jewish theologian, and he came up with this whole idea of, you know, this relationship with God is an I-thou relation. I, human being, thou, God. But it's, it's a personal relationship. Um, you can be in love with other things. You can love your car, but your car can't love you back. You can't really be in a relationship with your car or with food. You can love food, but it ain't going to love you back. Um, how do I grow my relationship with God? Here's what Chris says. Just step one, believe that there is a God who loves you. Now, very few people are atheists. I don't believe there's any such thing as an atheist. I don't believe there's anybody that's really an atheist. I think there are agnostics who are not sure. But an atheist, that takes more faith than being a believer. I mean, you've got to look. I was a scientist before going into the ministry. And science is just following the evidence where it takes you. As far as you can go, follow the trail. And, you know, you look around and you go, oh, this is a total accident. Randomness plus time and all these particles collided and produced grasshoppers and whales. Now, there's a difference between possibility and probability. Is it possible that in 13.8 billion years that all of these species of flora and fauna could have evolved? It's possible, but if you do the computer models, the probability is zero to the tenth millionth power. These are secular models. It couldn't happen. And yet, the politically correct science world, and on the surface, in private, guys have gotten off the Darwin train left and right, but you don't get tenure if you get off the Darwin train. So a lot of scientists are becoming theists, if not over Christians, because they say it's impossible. There's a designer, a creator. So you follow the the evidence. Um, and, but also believe this God loves you. That's the most important thing. This is a God who loves you enough that if you were, like Augustine says, if you were the only person ever lived, he would have gone to the cross and died just for you. And he went through literally hell and back for you. Chuck? Uh, I think that Jesus has to live And, you know, if you study scripture, you see God speaks through dreams to a lot of people. And I think that's still possible. Always check out your dream against scripture because there are other powers and principalities out there who'd like to 
seduce you through dream. Um, spend time with God. Learn about God. But yeah, I'd, I'd rather have you think about this personal relationship is like a relationship with another person. The more you speak with them, spend time with them, communicate from the depth of your being, that's what it's really all about. Um, and I think that's never going to end. I think we're going to be disciples. We, we're going to need to be disciples through eternity. I think Jesus is totally inexhaustible. We're going to be learning something. You know, the, the hymn goes, when we've been there 10,000 years. That, uh, uh, I think when we've been there 10,000 years, we still have not gotten to the bottom of who Jesus is. We're going to be learning eternally. Um, and it's all of grace. It's God that initiates this, reaches out to us before we reach out to him. And then we must reach out to others just as God reached out to us. And that's where disciple-making comes into the picture. If you've not tried to enter into a disciple-making relationship with someone, you need to do that. That's the Great Commission. It's not for the church, capital C. It's for every individual Christian. Um, if you're a father... Have you thought about discipling your kids? I've tried to do that with all my kids. It's as simple as I, I read through the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia with our oldest daughter. That was a discipling time. Um, disciple your husband and wife. You can disciple each other. Choose a good book to read together. Once a week, once a month, talk about what you're learning, like knowing God or something like that. You're discipling each other. And... You've got the example of Paul. Um, Paul wasn't looking to have a relationship with Christ. He wanted to wipe out the church. Paul is the most hopeful character in all of Scripture. Here's a guy that's totally anti-Christ, who becomes totally pro-Christ, and it's all of grace. And he becomes a disciple and a great disciple maker. And God brings Barnabas into his life, who's disciples Paul. It's the son of encouragement. It's, but it's all of grace. God initiates the relationship, and he asks his church. You know, we're part of the church. And one of the reasons I can't theologically don't go down the path of same-sex marriage is because God designed marriage, and the epitome in Scripture is Christ, the bridegroom, coming back for his bride, the church not coming back for his groom. Um, and he asks the church, will you marry me? He initiates this eternal relationship between himself and the church. And finally, final word, um, Chris quotes uh, Bonhoeffer from the cost of discipleship. But my final word to you would be this. If we could know God fully as, as finite, sinful, fallen human beings, if we could know him fully, then God would be a lot smaller than he really is. You know, don't think you can ever fully know God this side of eternity. Uh, Paul in Thessalonians says, Now we see through a glass darkly. Then, meaning in eternity, we will see face to face. We will know as we have been known. But this side of things, we never arrive to fully know God. 
I'm pretty sure when I get to heaven, I'm going to go, ooh, ooh, I blew it on that one, sorry. Um, and, as C.S. Lewis says, we're going to be surprised by who's there and who's not there. Uh, but another great classic book, if you've never read it, that'll help you in this area, is Your God is Too Small by J.B. Phillips. J.B. Phillips is an Anglican theologian. He wrote that book. He was an atheist, and he set out to write an intellectual treatise totally disproving the idea of the existence of a supreme being. And he says, well, I'm going to translate the New Testament out of the Greek and make my own translation, the Phillips translation. And that'll show me all the, the errors and the cracks and the thing. And he becomes a Christian. Like Jesus, you saw him in a dream, he literally jumps out of the pages and, and grabs J.D. Phillips. And, and Phillips becomes a great pastor and a theologian and writes this book, your God is too small. And get that book. It's, it's very short, easy to read. It hopefully will help you understand the immensity of God. I don't know if, you're, if you track with the James Webb telescope. I'm into that astrophysics stuff. And we're able to see now, they think, back to the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago when God, there was nothing and suddenly God creates matter, although, you know, there's particle theory and wave theory, and there's this Japanese astrophysicist who I read, I think he's a believer, he skates to the edge, but never really comes out, and he says, uh, he believes that the universe, there's no particles, hey, wait a minute, this desk is made up of particles, isn't it? Uh, there's more not, nothing here than something, if you understand chemistry and physics. And his theory is it's all wave, and it's like uh, sound waves. Music, he says musical wave. The universe is a symphony, and all symphonies have a creator. And he skates up to the edge, and that may be true. But when I look at these photographs, and there's billions and billions of galaxies and trillions and trillions of stars, I think that God's bigger than all of that. But then I think, well, how can he know me? I'm down on this tiny speck. And yet that's the message of scripture. He loves you. He, he created you. He thought of you before the foundation of the world. He sent his son to die for you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. So you're fully known. And someday you will fully know as you are known. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you didn't just create the universe and wind it up and let it run its course. We thank you that you created us not just to ramble aimlessly about on this planet, but you've come and invited us into a personal, living, intimate relationship with yourself. That we can say, yes, I know God personally without being arrogant. Lord, we don't deserve it. Um, sometimes we don't believe it, help our unbelief, and take us deeper in this relationship. Give us a hunger and thirst after prayer, your word, and the sacrament, that these things would build us up more and more into the very likeness of Christ. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen.